is the Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. It was 10 years ago, 10 years, dairy farmers who said they'd had enough got together in major protests in regional areas and then a march on Melbourne as well. It was the start of a lobby group in the dairy industry called Farmer Power. And now, 10 years later, Farmer Power has decided to call time and disband as a lobby group. What impact do you think Farmer Power had on Victorian and indeed Australian agriculture, on the dairy industry itself? Be interested in your thoughts today. Renegade Dairy Group. Uh, taking on the dairy industry establishment. It sounds mighty familiar to what's going on right now. I wonder what you make of that. Rural Business Elders has just been delivering some of its results to the stock market. We'll give you some information on that shortly, and we'll talk about managing dry times with some farmers as well. All of that and more is coming on up. And speaking of dry times, you might want to listen to this edition of Rural News too. Emma Field has that for you. Emma. G'day Warwick. Canadian-based dairy company Saputo has confirmed plans to reduce the number of Australian milk processing plants from 11 to just 6. Two of those plants are subject to approval by the ACCC after Saputo sold several sites to Coles. And another one in the company's sites is King Island Dairy, which is up for review. The announcement comes as the company released its latest financial results for the Australian division for the second quarter. Company Chief Executive Lino Saputo told a webcast, factory closures are part of the company's plans to put a lid on costs. We expect volatile consumer and market dynamics to continue. And we anticipate consumers to remain highly intentional in their spending, but we believe our broad portfolio of products and diversified channel exposure to position us well in consumer shopping carts. We will leverage our supply chain with a relentless focus on driving efficiencies in our business, optimising our network and driving out costs. And more than half of New South Wales is now drought affected, just 12 months after a large parts of the state were underwater with record flooding. And changes of conditions is wreaking havoc on farmers. Richard Darcy from Tullamore near Dubbo is coming to terms with yet another year of failed crops. He's been forced to sell some land just to make ends meet. We haven't had any grain. Like no, with the floods we've been too wet to put any crop in for the last two years. Or too dry this year, sorry, and too wet last year. Year before, luckily enough, we sowed late and we got crop. But in the, these last two years, has been nothing but a pretty hard time. They've been flood affected, ice affected, drought affected. You wouldn't think within the last six years, one crop in six years, we've had floods. You can't prepare when you've got floods at the wrong time of the year. You can't do hay. And that's what's happened to us. We're selling a couple of blocks to cover some debt so we can keep going if we can. That's what it means to us. The place over at Forbes that we're selling, they've been over there since the 1890s. So it's, it doesn't give us a very nice taste in their mouth. We're pretty gutted about doing it. Over to South Australia now, where its dairy industry is running a trial on tracing milk products along the entire supply chain from cow to consumer. It's been pulled together by DataHash, backed by the industry and supported by a recent Ag Tech Growth Fund grant and hopes to offer greater transparency and certainty, especially for consumers. Data Hash director David Travers has done similar work with the wine industry and says dairy is the logical next step. So what we're really looking to do is to digitise the physical process through automation so that ultimately we can track that litre of milk from the time that it's milked by a farmer 
in his dairy um, using sensors in the farm's vat, you know, through an application programming interface to a SCADA system, which is a process control system. So all the way along, picking up the flow of that information and storing it to a ledger so that ultimately when it you know, gets to the consumer, we've got evidence digitally of, of the journey of that litre of milk. Consumer confidence is shaky in China where financial markets are dropping, but so are temperatures, and wool producers are hopeful that means more demand for cosy Aussie wool jumpers. Jenny Turner from wool company Fox & Lily Rural says wool brokers hosted a delegation from China last week and gained some interesting insights for the market. Real estate in China is 60% down from where it was before, so a lot of negative equity. Share market in China is half of what it used to be, so their, their ideas of wealth have really changed. We heard some great news about some innovation in carding machinery. Traditional carding users must use wool that's free from burn. To achieve this, they chemically treat it by the carbonising process. Mm-hmm. But these new advanced carding drums can actually process up to 1.5% veg, which is significantly higher. We thought that was pretty cool news. And not something we can verify yet, but one report from a source in China was that retail is showing some really tentative signs of better sentiment. And finally, Coonwarra's Kath Kidman has been named Viticulturalist of the Year by the Australian Society of Viticulture and Enology. Overseeing the Viticulture Technical Program at Wins Coonawarra, Kath was recognised not just for her hard work, but her focus on mentoring up-and-coming workers in the industry. She says she has a passionate history in wine. So I've been with Wins for oh, a little over 12 years now, and prior to that I uh, was working with Vine Health Australia, it was known as the Phylloxera and Grape Industry Board back then doing research projects. So I've always been very interested in understanding how the grapevine works and how we can, I guess, get the best grape quality that we possibly can. So it's always been a focus of of mine and I've really enjoyed the role that I've had between academia, what's happening in in the universities and, and the science and the research and trying to translate that into practical changes out in the vineyard. And that's Rural News this Monday. Thanks very much for that, Emma Field, there with Rural News for you today. Uh, We're about to talk about Farmer Power closing its doors and closing a chapter, really, in Australian agri-political history. What do you make of that? Were you at one of the big rallies, either in Nurat or Tongala or the march in Melbourne about dollar milk? Do you think this organisation has had an impact either positively or negatively, on the Victorian dairy industry. I'd love to hear from you today because it was the Renegade Farm Lobby Group in the dairy industry that held angry rallies in regional Victoria, marched on Melbourne and called for an end to dollar per litre milk. But the time for fighting is over for Farmer Power as the organisation has decided to disband after 10 years in operation. I had a chat to outgoing CEO Gary Kerr about the achievements of his group and the decision to fold and throw support behind the traditional lobby group that they fought so hard against. Farmer Power for a while now has been trying to find a way forward. Uh, We've been working with members of the UNIV, even some with the Mark Billings crowd that have uh, left the UNIV without advising their members what they were planning to do uh, in trying to unite dairy farmers. Bernie Free from the UNIV has been in discussions with us probably for a while now, um, disagreeing on some things and agreeing on others, but we've always been able to work with him. And with Bernie now being made the president of the UDV, 
it gives us a lot more faith. And with those that have left leaving, it gives us a lot more faith that the UDB can actually perform the way we hope it would all perform. So Farmer Power decided to give them a bit of free air. So we decided we throw our support behind the UDV and, and hopefully they can get it all together and um, move forward as we would hope the others would agree and join with the UDV to make it a force to be reckoned with. So is this effectively the end of Farmer Power then as a standalone group by itself? As a standalone group, yes, definitely. So so um, the organisation's being disbanded? Yes, yep, yep, it will be. Um, we're in the process of doing that at the moment. Um, there's a lot of things we're pretty happy about and pretty chaffed about what we achieved. Farmer Power was extremely instrumental in the mandatory code being put in for all dairy farmers, and, and that is something very special for dairy farmers. And it's, as most dairy farmers would admit, it's seeing them out um, over the last few years, it's, it's been an excellent result for them. A few other things that we tackled, we had a bit of achievement, like Farmer Power, mate, as you know, led the original rally in Melbourne for the dairy farmers, about the $1 litre milk. Going back that far, even then, the UDV was supposed to support Farmer Power and they pulled the plug on it just prior to the march. So there was, yeah, I suppose, an issue of who was actually representing dairy farmers. It was all about the $1 litre milk and no one was taking any action to take on the supermarkets. So they decided to run the rally um, up to Melbourne, which had over a 1,000 people in attendance and garnished so much media coverage. Uh, at that stage, dairy farmers were doing extremely tough. So that's basically how Farmer Power came into being. Yeah, so um, January 2013, and you're deciding yeah. to, to wrap it up at the end of 2023, so a little over 10 years yeah, as a yeah. lobby group. You, you've already mentioned yeah. some of the achievements, but but has Farmer Power had an impact on the on the farming and the particularly the dairy landscape in that time, in your view? Oh, mate, the mandatory code, as I said, um, it was really pushed by Farmer Power. We ran a event, I suppose, with Sam Kekovich, if you might remember, going in Victoria, promoting the mandatory code. At that stage, neither the ADF nor the UDV supported the mandatory code, um, but the states, all the other states, did basically. So it came down to a vote with the ADF, and um, Terry Richardson had the final vote to support the mandatory code. But I do know that there was pressure put on Terry from um, David Littleproud, who was then Agricultural Minister. And then uh, progressed down the path of all the consultations and all the rest. And then it came to the point where we were told uh, all the consultations would have been listened to. They'll make a decision. Then Bridget McKenzie took over as our cultural minister and she put out her first release on what the mandatory code was to look like. And we all went ballistic. It was nothing like what it was supposed to be. It was all in favour of the processes. We went up to meet with Bridget. And uh, we travelled up there, three of us, and it took us three months to get the appointment. And when we finally got there, we were told she wasn't available. So I don't know if you remember, that's when I said she needs to either resign or be sacked. And that was basically a huge turning point because after that, I was contacted by her department. I got to go up and meet with Bridget. It was a frank and open discussion. And at the end of it, we agreed to agree. So um, that was the turning point for the mandatory code. And you um, see, without farmer power, you do not think there'd be a mandatory code in dairy? Oh, no, definitely wouldn't have. Not, not, not the way it happened. You've got to understand the politics behind this. And it, it, the politics were huge, uh, especially with the processes involved. And um, they were lobbying hard for no mandatory code. And 
you got to, you got to, well, we've always said farmer power was the little mouse that roared. So it is roared the industry power. better now that it has a mandatory code in your view? It's definitely better now that the mandatory code is in place, but there's still work to be done um, in uniting the industry. And that's what this is, and this is what we've always wanted. And this is from farmer power's viewpoint. This is our way of doing it. So now we're swinging our support behind the UDV with its current um, body that's in control, uh, their policy council, the new policy council, and hopefully with Bernie at the helm, they can make this work. You rankled at me when I described Farmer Power for many years as the renegade dairy <laughs> farmer lobby group, but has the renegade group gone ma- mainstream now by throwing its support behind the Victorian dairy lobby? Mate, I always said to you we were never a renegade group. <laughs> we were a group that wanted to give voice to the dairy farmers that needed that voice because they weren't being heard by those higher up the chain. And that's what we did. Where does Dairy Farmers Victoria, the new renegade group in dairy, if you will, fit into all of this in your mind? Uh, in my opinion, they don't. Um, they left the UDV without consulting with their members. Uh, it's a group of... UDV members, or UDV, I suppose, policy councillors that we didn't really agree with. <laughs> so uh, this change has made it a lot easier for Farmer Power to take this decision. It was a disrupting group, though, in mind. So were there any negatives to that Farmer Power brought to the discussion in your mind? No. <laughs> Farmer Power was the voice of, you know, reason, I suppose, the voice of accountability. That's what. That's probably the best way to describe farmer power. Farmer power is the voice of accountability, and every industry needs that. It's still tough for dairy farmers. I'm not saying it isn't, um, but at least now they're on a level playing field. That is Gary Kerr, the outgoing CEO of Farmer Power. Farmer Power as a group deciding to disband, and as you heard, throw its support behind the UDV. So. In an interesting development, I suppose, is how you describe it in the dairy lobby. You've had 10 years ago Farmer Power splitting, really, from the UDV to campaign against dollar milk and do things that say that the traditional dairy lobby was not going far enough to lobby against. Uh, now that group is disbanding and throwing its support behind the current leadership of the UDV. At the same time, a different group from the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria, has split away and formed Dairy Farmers of Victoria. Clear as mud. Next time you see me at an event, we'll try and map it out, maybe on a bit of butcher's paper together. Speaking of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria, you heard Gary Kerr reference uh, that they've been speaking to uh, President of the UDV, Bernie Free. Uh, Those nomination processes are ongoing under the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria for a new board after all of those mass resignations uh, led to the forming of a new dairy group. But Bernie Free is the only nomination for president of the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria. Uh, I don't think there are any nominations for vice president at the moment. There are a number of nominations for councillors, for policy councillors, and those elections are going on at the moment and on November 20th the new look leadership and policy council for the United Dairy Farmers of Victoria will be announced. We'll be looking to speak to Bernie Free around that time. So that is the update on what's happening in the dairy lobby at the moment. Be interested to hear your thoughts, particularly if you went to those 
regional protests of Farmer Power? Do you think it was a group that uh, led to major change in the dairy industry? Do you think it played a big role in getting the mandatory dairy code, which is what the industry is operating under at the moment? You can send a text 0467 842 722. Some of those that are coming in at the moment. So Farmer Power have taken over the UDV. What could possibly go wrong? I hope other industry bodies protect themselves from this rabble, says Farmer Joe, clearly not happy obviously, with that group's performance. And this one says they've overstated what they achieved, had no members and can't trade off negativity forever. You can tell me what you think, 0467 842 722, if you want to send a text message to the country hour. Let's talk elders right now. Earnings for agribusiness giant elders have fallen more than a quarter on the previous year, according to the results released today. Uh, They've attributed the fall to lower prices for ag chemicals, huge decline in livestock prices, as well as inflationary pressures and rising interest rates affecting the bottom line, which saw earnings before interest and tax down 26% on the previous year to $171 million. Angus Verley spoke with Managing Director and Chief Executive Mark Allison. I think uh, when we look at the backdrop, which is a very difficult last 12 months through uh, regional rural Australia and uh, and agriculture, uh, with uh, commodity prices uh, coming off significantly, uh, the result is the uh, is pretty solid. It's the uh, the second highest result in 10 years for elders. Uh, the return on capital at 16% is uh, a premium return on capital. And uh, the uh, cash conversion that we've achieved has also been uh, very, very positive from a uh, shareholder viewpoint. So uh, I, I think making the best of difficult situations is uh, is how I'd describe it. Uh, what aspect of the elders' business is responsible for most of the uh, profit decline? Well, I, th- I think everyone throughout uh, regional rural Australia is aware of the uh, the decline in livestock prices, both sheep and cattle. Our feeling as we were coming into FY23 was that there would be a decline from the record highs from previous years. Uh, we thought it might have been a 20 or 25% uh, reduction, but it's uh, uh, 60% plus across uh, a number of areas. So, so that, that's had a, uh, a big imp- impact on the uh, business. And there's also been uh, the impact of uh, declining input uh, costs, which meant that we uh, had a higher price to inventory and we're obviously needing to sell that at a discount because of the declining uh, costs uh, coming in for replacement stock. And for your clients, for farmers, with that uh, big decline in livestock prices, I suppose uh, overall a big hit to confidence and, and reduced willingness or, or ability to spend on some of the products and services that Elders offers? Yeah, I think there's a bit of that. I mean, it's, it, it is a significant hit. It, when you look at the uh, farm management deposits around Australia, they're at a record high of seven billion. So, uh, so it would seem, or well, the numbers would say, uh, that it's not a uh, crisis situation throughout uh, through uh, throughout uh, our ag communities uh, because there, you know, there's a fair um, uh, a bunch of uh, deposits there and resources. But it is very, very difficult, and uh, you know, particularly where investments were made by many of our clients to increase the flocks and the herds and they've had good uh, good seasons and then the uh, the value of their uh, their product uh, is has diminished significantly yes yeah, so it's very very difficult if we look to the future uh, the very strong el nino forecast uh, in victoria to this point we've had very good conditions but uh, very strong expectations that it will get dry as it has in other parts of the country. So uh, is the worst still to come? 
No, I don't think so. Uh, certainly, uh, my personal view on it is uh, quite positive and optimistic because we don't see El Nino events right across the board. There, they tend to be regionalised and localised. Uh, the uh, I think the uh, the bomb uh, uh, is saying that uh, as we come into autumn, uh, any uh, potential El Nino effects uh, will be diluted. The oldest share price, though, it's. Uh sitting just over $6, that's uh, around $4 less than it was at, if we were having this conversation at the same time last year? Yeah, well, I, I think uh, I just had a quick look between uh, presentations this morning and it's up to uh, it had got to $7 today. But, yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of factors because you'll recall this time last year there was also a succession issue that has been resolved. Uh, and uh, this time last year, we we're also going into uh, some uns- uh, geopolitical uncertainties and the uh, early call that there will be an El Nino effect, which hasn't been anywhere near the level that was uh, called at that time. That succession issue, that was uh, in this time last year, you announced or the company announced that you would eventually be departing the business, but then earlier this year, that, that decision was reversed and you, you made, well, a lot of money was put on the table to incentivise you to stay with the business. Yeah, well, I think that, uh, you know, it's a really exciting period this next three years. Uh, when we look at the fourth APON plan, so we overachieved all of our commitments for the first three APON plans. They're, they're all three-year plans. And I think now running through for the next three years, particularly with the systems modernisation that we're putting in place, which will allow elders to have a platform to further service and, and uh, cross-service our clients uh, with uh, new innovative um, uh, management systems, etc. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, like a really exciting period. The, the issue with El Nino or cl- climatic cycles and with livestock cycles is that they're cycles. Uh, we commit to 5 to 10% growth through the cycles. And, uh, you know, as we go through the next three years, uh, the market conditions will be more favourable. Having said that, the business model was resilient enough to allow us to uh, to deliver pretty strong results this year on the back of uh, or in the face of difficult market conditions. Elders have spent quite a lot of money on an automated wool handling facility in Melbourne. When's that going to be up and running? Uh, so uh, there's uh, one in uh, Perth and one in Melbourne. So in Perth, uh, that was launched in um, in July this year, and that's operating well. And the the Melbourne facility uh, will be opened in uh, February next year. So, uh, and it's a three hundred eighty thousand bale capacity. So uh, across the uh, across the two. So it's, again, it's pretty exciting. And also, you know, the twenty five million dollars investment into wool. Uh, it's the biggest investment in wool for many, many years and I, I guess just shows our core DNA. Next year we'll be a 185-year-old company and, uh, you know, regional rural Australia, wool and uh, livestock and agribusiness is our core. And are you content with that investment at a time when there has been a move away from wool production in a lot of areas? Yeah, well, well I think, you know, wool is still an important industry in Australia. And there may have been a move away in terms of uh, alternative uh, products uh, to uh, to use, but uh, from our viewpoint, th- this is multi generational client base. You know, we, we've uh, we've started in the wool industry. Uh, the prospect of us not, in fact, we are the only ones to reinvest significantly in the wool industry, and we believe in it. A, a common criticism of, of big businesses like Elders is that they're not necessarily paying their their fair fair share of the tax burden. What what's Elders' mm-hmm. tax bill look like? Uh, well, you're probably aware of back back in the day. In fact, when I uh, when I joined the board, uh, we were in bad bank and almost uh, had made multiple losses, and uh, 
and therefore we, we had a significant build-up of tax losses. And so you need to earn your way out of those tax losses. So we haven't, because of the tax loss situation, uh, we haven't been paying uh, tax as we take up all the tax losses and we're just about at the point where now we're through all those tax losses because of the uh, the strong growth of the business. Okay, so right through till now after that lean trot for elders, you, you, you haven't paid any tax through that period? Uh, no, we, we have paid because we have a number of entities where we're not uh, one, a majority owner. And so in those, we, we pay taxes. And that's why, you know, our dividend, the 23-cent dividend is 30% uh, franked uh, because we do use our tax credits – or sorry, the, yeah, the tax credits, franking credits uh, from the entities where, where they're uh, not wholly owned by us. That is Mark Allison, who is the Chief Executive and Managing Director of Elders, speaking with Angus Furley about the big fall in uh, their earnings before interest and tax, down 26% on the previous year, $171 million for elders in their results announced the stock market today. We've got the weather on the way for you on the Country Hour. After that, we'll talk about dry times and even about how the uh, difficulties at the ports, the cyber incident, I believe uh, the government's been calling it, uh, for one of the major stevedoring companies is affecting one element of agriculture. We'll get to that for you too. But right now, let's find out what's making regional news headlines. Angus McIntosh is in the regional newsroom for you today. Good afternoon, Angus. Good afternoon. In headlines today, Mary Aldred will be the next Liberal candidate for Monash after beating long-serving MP Russell Broadbent in a pre-selection battle last night. Ms Aldred received 161 out of 193 first-round votes, while Mr Broadbent and South Gippsland Mayor Nathan Hersey won 16 votes apiece. Ms Aldred says she's humbled and honoured by the support from branch members. Police say the four people killed in a car crash near Mansfield in Victoria's Alpine region yesterday were seasonal farm workers from overseas. The four men were in a car that crashed and burst into flames at the small town of Pirries yesterday. Assistant Police Commissioner Glenn Weir says police believe the men aged in their 20s had been drinking before the accident. Two people are dead after the car they were travelling in with collided with a truck and ute in Gornong yesterday afternoon. Police say the driver of a small hatchback lost control on the Midland Highway, colliding with the ute um, at about a quarter to three. The driver, a 32-year-old Faulkner man, and his passenger, who is yet to be formally identified, died at the scene. A Peak Property Investors Association is supporting a coroner's call for mandatory landlord checks of smoke alarms in all rental properties. The coroner's recommendation followed the death of Simon Scarf in his Alfredton rental, which did not have a fire detector, in February 2022. Victorian law does require smoke alarms in all residences, but it does not require landlords to regularly test and service those alarms in tenancies entered before late March 2021. Richard Crabb, the Deputy Chair of Property Investment Professionals Australia, supports the law change, saying it's critical rental properties are safe for tenants. A spokesperson for Minister of Consumer Affairs, Gabrielle Williams, says smoke alarm safety requirements are being monitored. And that's headlines. Thanks very much. much. Angus uh, McIntosh there with regional news headlines. The Victorian Country Hour with Warwick Long on ABC Radio Victoria. Jake sent a text to say, G'day was it's been a very tough day on light store lambs in Bendigo today. Jake, we'll check on that when we get to the market reports. But oh, 
almost feel like you could have sent that text at many different times throughout this year. And if you're sending it now, that makes me worried. We'll hear what the numbers say, though. A little closer to one o'clock right now, we'll go to Lincoln Trainer, who's a senior forecaster at the Bureau of Meteorology. Hi, Lincoln. Hello, Warwick. How are you today? I'm good. How's it looking outside at the windows of regional Victoria this lunchtime, though? Well, looking at the satellite picture, it is sunny and the cloud has just cleared across the whole state. Um, and that's because we do have a ridge of high pressure extending across Victoria. It's directing a mainly light to mod southerly flow across the state from today until the rest of the week. So we're going to see similar conditions. It's going to bring cooler and cloudy conditions to the south of the state with the chance of a shower at times. And to the north, we're going to see mainly sunny, mild to warm conditions. So if we take a closer look today, Mildura will be 29, Horsham 25, Hamilton 21, Echuca 26, Bendigo 25, Ballarat. At 21, Wodonga 27, Sale 22, and Bansdale 21. And if we use that as a marker for the week, um, Tuesday, probably the, a little bit of interesting weather around, we do get some overnight patches of rain in the Mallee and Wimmera. Uh, and that's going to come from some mid-level cloud crossing the area. No more than 2 to 5 millimetres, mainly between 3am and 11am tomorrow. And then temperatures will be a little bit cooler, 3 to 5 degrees cooler than those I've just run read out um, and with some cloud cover and that will see Mildura at 25, Swan Hill at 22, Horsham around 20. The south will remain cool and cloudy uh, tomorrow. Uh, temperatures in the high teens and low 20s. Wednesday is going to be relatively dry, a little bit like today. Temperatures rising, 3 to 4 degrees, particularly in the north. Mildura will go back up to 29, Horsham 24. So the north will rise again by about 3 to 4 degrees, remaining cool in the south. Thursday to Friday, slightly milder in the north as a southerly picks up. Um, and then, uh, so like a moderate southerly, so about, you know, maybe uh, 20 to 30 kilometres an hour. Uh, and that will create... Um, yeah, mild conditions across the state. Saturday and Sunday, temperatures to begin to heat up. So that's where we start to really see the temperature go up. North will be, north of the state will see high 20s into low 30s on Saturday. South will be low to mid 20s. And then it's warmer still Sunday. We're going to see in the north mid 30s. So it's going to be hot in the north on Sunday. And in the south, it's going to be mid to high 20s. That is about it, Warwick. And Lincoln, I suppose warnings-wise then, we're expecting it to be fairly light on this week? Yeah, this is compared to last week. The only warning we have out at the moment is a strong wind warning from marine waters over central Gippsland coast. I mean, if we look at the fire danger ratings, they're still moderate. They're creeping towards high by the end of the week, but nothing significant at the moment. Well, is there anything on the extended radar we need to keep an eye on, Lincoln? <laughs> uh, no, the seven-day radar that I've got up <laughs> is uh, is pretty good. So I'd say into next week with the temperatures getting up, I think we'll be looking at those fire danger ratings. That'll be what's on my yep. radar. There's a, there'll yep. be a lot of happy harvesters uh, and uh, fruit growers listening to that 
report at least once they get past this this next little uh, little bit of rain, they'll be uh, happy for dry times anyway. So you know, you don't, I know you don't make everyone happy, but maybe this this week you have. Hopefully, hopefully <laughs> this week I've tried my best. Uh, thanks very much, Lincoln. Thanks, Warwick. Lincoln Trainer, Senior Forecaster at the Bureau. And, of course, if you're a livestock producer and it's been dry and you need your damn full, don't worry. Don't worry. I know you wouldn't be happy with that report, but a lot of paper harvesting right now would be. Uh, you can always send me a text with what you're up to and uh, how's it going on your place. And you can send me a photo now too, 0467 842 if you would like to send me a text. Actually, speaking of dry times, let's – Stay there right now with one part, not really of this state, but just across the border in the far west of New South Wales. Livestock producer Angus White is holding on to hundreds of sheep he would otherwise have sold because prices don't cover his cost of production. He says his community, which is predominantly made up of sheep and goat producers, is struggling. As temperatures hit the high 30s last week, he organised a community gathering to talk about surviving what is predicted to be a hot, dry summer with unsaleable livestock and prices at their lowest levels in years. Elsie Kennedy reports. On Angus White's property on the Darling Anna Branch River, about 90 kilometres north of Wentworth in southern New South Wales, the grass is still tall after heavy rain and flooding last year, but he knows it won't last. Rainfall so far this year has been below average and temperatures are heating up. He has 500 head of cattle and 8,000 head of sheep, some of which he would have sold if he could get a decent price for them. Normally this time of year we'd sell some older ewes for mutton and really, honestly, you'd be giving them away. And I'm not saying we wouldn't give them away because they might be better off um, in someone's freezer than rather than walking around the paddocks here if we, if we have a long, hot, dry summer. But yeah, it makes for some difficult decisions because uh, there is no price there. And, and it's not just price, it's also kill space. And so how, how are you thinking that you might play things over the next 12 months? At the moment, we're looking to hang on to most of our stock and, our, and including your lambs until after shearing in April. And that'll be our next clear decision point. You speak to a lot of other livestock producers. How are people going? I don't reckon they're going very well. We're having an okay season, so that's a that's a positive. We've got water in our river, that's a big positive in our little area. Really though, with low livestock prices and it's not always easy to keep a positive upbeat attitude and and make sure you're moving forward. We just need to make sure everyone feels connected in our community at this you know, at any stage, but certainly right now. Last week, Angus organised a gathering for livestock producers in the Murray River town of Curlwa to talk about mental health and how to get through the next 12 months. Livestock analyst and Episode 3 director Matt Dalgleish was one of the people Angus organised to come and speak. His message to producers was that the next 12 months would be tough, but if producers focused on their margins and tightened their belts, there were reasons to be optimistic. What we're seeing now at the moment is is part of a, a broader commodity cycle, and it's not something um, that we haven't seen before in terms of these types of price corrections, and particularly these types of price corrections when we are going through a, a liquidation or a, into a drought phase. Um, you, know, you, you can get this kind of um, depressed pricing. But when you look to the longer-term fundamentals of the sheep sector specifically, 
Um, the, the nature of that global supply picture is that there's only really two competitors in the market, and it's us and New Zealand. And New Zealand have been shrinking their flock while we've grown ours. Um, so we're, we're capturing more market share. But also when you look on the demand side of the equation, there's a lot of opportunity as you go past this kind of current short-term part of the cycle into the end of the decade. The growth prospects for sheep meat demand across a range of different countries is very strong and robust. So there's a heap of opportunity. Um, it's just a matter of being in a position and having you know the right kind of volumes and, and, and that within the industry to be able to um, accommodate the demand that's going to be there into the future. Mm, so looking forward five or ten years, where are you expecting that demand to be coming from? So we've got uh, the traditional markets, of course. The Middle East is going to be maintained. They've already got high per capita consumption of sheep meat. Um, we're just re-entering back into the UK with a free trade agreement. So that's going to help us be more competitive into there and compete with New Zealand in the UK. And the UK is another country where the consumption of sheep meat is um, a common thing, like, like Australia, like New Zealand. So those Commonwealth countries have that proportion of um, you know, per capita consumption of sheep meat is quite high. But then you've got countries like America, who the USA is a big um, you know, kind of um, export market for, for sheep meat, for Australian sheep meat and particularly lamb. But when you look at the proportion of how much per capita Americans eat, it's tiny. You know, it's about three or four kilos um, you know, of meat per capita. And so there's actually a big area of growth opportunity in, in America. If we could get that, them up to the level of six or seven kilos like what we eat in Australia, that's a massive, massive amount of, um, of product because of you know, a much bigger population, of course, you know, 330 million. Um, then you've got a country like India, who we've just signed free trade agreement with, another country that eats sheep meat and goat meat. Um, you know, there's prospects to see India over the next decade grow into a, a China-type um, export destination, very high population. Uh, people within that country, there are big populations within India that have significant wealth, so they can spend, um, you know, their money in the way that, like, you know, we do in the West, where we spend a lot of money on food. Um, and so there's, there's a lot of opportunity across those markets as well um, as those traditional ones, and that's, you know, including China as well. China still isn't isn't over yet and Southeast Asia is another area where demand for sheep meat is fairly strong and robust too. So there's so many sectors across the world where there's potential to grow. It's um, it's a huge opportunity. That is Matt Dalgleish from Episode 3 uh, speaking to Elsie Kennedy there on uh, ABC Rural. This is the country area. It's 17 to 1. Huge incident ongoing at the moment with the federal government saying it still doesn't yet know who's behind a cyber security incident that shut down Australia's second largest port operator and could affect freight in and out of the country for days. DP World Australia, which operates ports in Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane and Fremantle, is responsible for about 40% of Australia's maritime freight and it's closed after it began responding to a cyber security incident on Friday. And as that situation continues, we've been doing the ring around on ABC Rural to find out how affected agriculture is. I've spoken to a lot of summer fruit producers, uh, table grape producers, cherry producers to say so far it hasn't caused a huge disruption to them, but they're watching it closely to see if it starts to enter their seasons, which all start exporting very soon. Uh, Sean Cole can join you now, who is Acting GM Policy and Advocacy of Grain Growers Limited and can join you on the program. Sean, welcome to the country out. Thanks, Warwick. Thanks for having me. Is this something you're watching closely? Uh, does a lot of grain go by shipping container? Uh, it does, Warwick, yeah. So, look, obviously the bulk of what we export in Australia is... Um, in bulk on bulk vessel, but 
containerized exports are a very important part of the, the puzzle, basically, when it comes to getting grain out of the country. So obviously the current situation, uh, you know, is obviously being very closely watched by us in industry uh, to make sure that we, you know, can get our product out of the door, especially as we're on the, the cusp of harvest and, in fact, started harvest in a lot of parts of the country. It's, is it a particular concern to agriculture and, and groups like yours? You've got a particular, like, well, not, not the most out of uh, agriculture, but still a perishable product, right? So I'd imagine that's the area that gets the most concerned when they, we're starting to talk about disla- delays at ports that could become a domino effect for days into months. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Warwick. I think, look, it definitely rocks confidence. doesn't matter if you're in the perishable space. Obviously, that will be the more immediate um, risk there with, you know, stone fruit people, as you've been speaking to, you know, that, that product going bad, potentially before it even gets the war for overseas. But I guess with the grain side too, there's a lot of containers uh, affected. You know, we're hearing up to 30,000 container, uh, containers affected through this. So, you know, that'll create a, a backup. And then grain, a lot of grain is actually packed um, directly from farm goes through a packer that doesn't have a lot of storage space. Um, so they're relying on getting that box back into the wharf at the moment. That's um, that that would be a hold up with a, definitely a priority on imported goods at the moment. Um, and, and in addition to that as well, work I suppose it ties into the the greater conversation around port reform. So you know we're hoping the government um, can also look at the development of a national mandatory code um, to address um, recent uh, terminal access charge increases in a couple of major capitals. And just, oh, I'll come to that in just a moment, but is that one of the concerns, I suppose, too, for an export-dominant industry like grains, which you represent, is that knock-on effect? We saw during COVID that with ships uh, slowing down and, and the difficulty in moving products around the uh, the world, it effectively took months, if not a year, to, to right itself. Um, is mm. the concern here if ports shut down for an extended period due to a cyber attack, the, the ramifications, uh, even if they reopen, could last a while yet? Yeah, look, uh, Warwick, it's definitely a case where, you know, you never get, if you miss your shipping windows, if you miss a vessel, you don't get that one back. So every day, every week that goes by um, is a lost opportunity, you know, for the for our international brand. Um, also, it's a lost opportunity for the grower. So we, we hope this thing gets back on track ASAP. And um, although we're, you know, agnostic on the industrial relations side, you know, we, we, we do hope there's uh, um, some, you know, uh, good actions there that make sure that things are restored and make sure grain growers and other all growers indeed can get their product out of the country in a timely manner. And DP World is a company, and as you mentioned earlier, that your organisation has been taking aim at for large increases into their fees uh, for, for using their services as well. Do you worry what you're paying for when they can't withstand a cyber attack? Yeah, look, there's some things that, you know, obviously aren't probably out of the control and even the best laid plans um, Warwick, you know, and all all the contingency plans of the world sometimes can't prepare you. But I suppose when you look at the the uh, landside fee charges, you know, you know, upwards of fifty percent in Melbourne increase and thirty eight percent, I think thirty seven percent, thirty seven and a half in Brisbane, they're very large increases. So, we, you know, obviously grain growers is calling for um, the government to look at the the recommendations from the Productivity Commission review, which recommended um, sort of like a national regulation. Um, a mandatory regulation on um, on these charges because at the moment they're, they're very large and it affects our ability to be a you know inter- internationally competitive exporter to be honest. Do you think a disruption like this makes DP World more likely or less likely to listen to you? <laughs> Look, we're just one of many voices, uh, Warwick, and I suppose we you know we come we come from a place where we understand DP World have a business to run, um, but you know obviously we 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 we're here to represent growers and make sure we're getting a fair deal. So. You know, I suppose when there's justified 
increases um that's fine but the, you know obviously these increases are quite quite ritzy to say the least uh well sean cole we value your time on the program thanks very much for joining us pleasure thanks Warwick. sean cole there from grain growers limited he's the acting general manager of policy and advocacy for grain growers speaking to you there on the country hour it is uh, 11 to 1 on the program right now. We'll stay with grain farming right now, actually. And, well, drought resilience, which was our story before that. Researchers say including legumes such as lentils, chickpeas and faba beans in crop rotations can improve soil health and bring less reliance on nitrogen fertiliser. Melbourne University's Redesigning Broadacre Farming Systems project is in its second year. It's looking at how crop farming can be more adaptable in times of drought. Associate Professor uh, Doran Gupta says the project has demonstrated diversification is the key to future drought resilience. This particular project is something we are trying to demonstrate uh, a set of practices which has proven through our research previously having impact to uh, have more resilient farming uh, system in terms of uh, mitigating stresses like drought, heat, and also looking for more resilient farming system where we incorporate um, you know, native vegetation and native crops as well. This is the second year of the project. You've just had your um, your field day to have a look at how some of the, the trial crops are going. How did it go and, yeah, how are things looking? We demonstrated, uh, you know, some of the legumes which we are testing, which are really relevant to regions such as uh, our existing crops, fava bean, but uh, some of the legumes like lupin, which growers used to grow a few years ago here, but um, they they stopped growing it because of uh, the crop was suffering from uh, various diseases. But uh, new varieties are improved ones. They have better resistance to the diseases, but also we demonstrated some more risky legumes for this region, such as lentil and chickpea. The whole idea is to ensure that farmers think around moving a regular practice of just going with wheat and canola in their crop rotation and inclusion of legumes into their farming um, so that it become more uh, diversified cropping option. But also incorporation of legumes brings so many benefits. We've been discussing about it a lot. Um, and uh, there is definitely interest, but I think there is a risk factor involved. So to mitigate uh, that risk coming from different stresses, such as drought and heat, our study has shown use of silicon fertilizer to help uh, these crops to mitigate st- stresses. Um, and um, the crops are looking really good at our trial site here, uh, not only legumes, but also um, cereal crops such as wheat. Um, but additionally, we have also demonstrated um, wheat crop, which is um, there for graze and grain purpose. Um, so bringing uh, in understanding around the dual purpose cropping at the same time. And your research is looking at um, broadacre farming systems in terms of resilience and going into into drought. As we move into an El Nino, uh, you know, weather forecast and, and season, is there some takeaway bits of information from your research that could be used for, um, you know, farming in terms of El Nino and drier weather? You know, we have been in a business of uh, where we have more profit, more risk involved with the way climate is changing. I was just looking for a post today morning where uh, for Victoria, in some parts we have warning for fire, but also we have warning for flood. So, you know, it's it's happening at a faster pace in, in really small 
macro environments as um, micro environments. So uh, yeah, when we have uh, stresses like you know drought, for example, or heat stress, our controlled research has definitely shown, and there's plenty of literature supporting that these crops they perform better when we have um, silicon fertilizer being used. So yeah, I believe we should be able to provide more information um, based on you know when we if there will be some drier spells as we go ahead with especially grain filling time of our crops. And yeah, as I highlighted, even last year when we had waterlogging, one of the stress for our crops, our crops performed better when we had silicon fertilizer being utilized, and especially for legumes. That is Associate Professor Doreen Gupta from the University of Melbourne's Dookie campus speaking to Annie Brown uh, on the text line. Someone saying, so Melbourne Uni does do agricultural research. Why did they abandon it Longrenong College? Because it didn't make money for the university. Where are the values, says Sue on the text, 0467 842 722, if you want to send a text to us on the country hour uh just before we get to livestock markets on the program now let's uh talk about well markets uh of a different kind right now with meat and livestock australia launching two new market indicators for livestock producers driven by the rise of online livestock sales mla has the online auction online young cattle indicator and the online lamb indicator matt brand spoke to stephen bignall from mla so we did an indicator review last year, Matt, and a lot of the feedback that we got then was MLA should increase uh, its coverage of different sales channels. So we've taken that feedback online. It's been a while um, in the making, but we have partnered uh, with online providers and, and generated an online indicator, both the Ollie for lamb and the Oki for young cattle. How do you think producers will use these indicators? Um, I think that for producers that are looking at selling online, it will give a really good understanding to those producers around the trends that are happening in the online marketplace. Um, The online lamb indicator is for um, animals, uh, suckers and lambs up to 24 kilos. And for cattle, uh, it includes wiener, heifer and steers and yearling heifer and steers between 200 and 400 kilos. And so it'll provide trends. The lamb one is in dollars per head basis and the cattle, the on, online young cattle indicator uh, is in a cents per kilo live weight basis. That is Steve Bignall from MLA speaking there. Just before we head to livestock markets and breaking news too, police say the four people killed in a crash near Mansfield in Victoria's Alpine region yesterday were seasonal farm workers from overseas. The four men were in a car that crashed and burst into flames at the small town of Perry's yesterday. Assistant Police Commissioner Glenn Weir says police believe the men aged in their 20s had been drinking before the accident and were working in the vegetable industry near Mansfield. The victims are yet to be formally identified but police say they're fairly sure who they are. You'll hear more of that in the news uh, at mid or at one o'clock, I should say. Right now, let's get into livestock markets. We'll start with Bendigo. Let's check on that sheep and lamb market. Here is Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. Just a 10% increase in lamb supply to 18,700 head, with quality again mostly on the plain side, with not a lot of weight or fat cover evident. The market was 3 to $10 softer. Trade weights and lighter lambs the most affected. The three main domestic orders were absent, the suggestion being they are getting enough trade lambs further south. 
Heavier lambs over 26 kilos carcass weight sold to the best demand at 124 to a top of $159 at a ballpark 470 to 520 cents a kilo. But the main run of crossbred trades in the 20 to 24 kilo range made 80 to 118 dollars, coming back to averages of 420 to 450 cents. MK style and store lambs were also cheaper. The 16 to 18 kilo types to the paddock costing 65 dollars at less than 400 cents. There was also a fair wing of very small and immature lambs which made from $4 to $30. Sheep market still flat with heavy crossbred used $24 to $28 at well under a buck a kilo. Some of the leaner trade sheep were dearer at $23 to $30. So basically it was $20 to $30 for most sheep regardless of weight. Jenny Kelly for MLA. Oh, that sounds tough. Let's go to Mortlake in the cattle market. Take it away, Chris Hagney. Thanks, Warwick. Due to the prevailing dry spring being experienced in the Western District, numbers ballooned out to 1,990 this week at Mortlake, an increase of 1,000 head. Trade cattle on offer displayed excellent quality, as did manufacturing steers and bullocks, and there was a good mixture of beef cows as well as dairy breeds. Most of the regular buyers were in attendance and some did not operate at all. Grown cattle and manufacturing steers as well as trade cattle remained firm and the cows were firm to slightly softer in places by up to five cents a kilo. Bulls slipped 15 cents. This week some good vealers were on offer and they made between 145 and 245 cents a kilo. Trade steers and heifers 163 to 235. The grown cattle topped at 216. The good beef cows made from 165 to 188 with the medium weights between 140 and 170 cents a kilo. Dairy cows were between 132 and 176 cents. At Mortlake, this is Chris Agnew reporting for MLA. To Wagga Cattle Now and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. Numbers lifted by 600 with 4,470 offered. Quality was quite good with plenty of weight in the yarding. Not all domestic buyers were operating. However, all export companies were in attendance. The market did gather pace for all yearlings and weaners. However, the export market struggled to gain traction. Trade steers, 400 to 500 kilo, gained 14 cents, 183 to 228. Feeder steers were up 18 cents, $2 to 240. The lighter weights lifted seven, topping at 258. Feeder heifers jumped 11, 165 to 199. Trade heifers were firm, one. 66 to 197. Heavy heifers improved 5 to 10 cents, 170 to 2 dollars. Heavy cows run change 176 to 196, and the middle run improved 5, 128 to 162. With the market still in progress, Leanne Dax for MLA. Lucky last, Brendan Fletcher's at Packenham. G'day, Warwick. Numbers are firm at 1,070, with the usual buying group operating in a cheaper market in places compared to the sale of a fortnight ago. Cows sold from firm to 7 cents cheaper, with processors loading cows for an estimated 269 to 349 cents a kilogram carcass weight. Vealers sold from 170 to 270, yearling tray steers 190 to 258 after a top of 282, the heifer portion 170 to 240, grown steers 210 to 249, bullocks 205 to 238, heavy Friesian steers 142 to 176, crossbreds 168 to 215, most light and medium weight cows 110 to 170, heavyweights 134 to 185, heavy bulls 167 to 216. This is Brendan Fletcher reporting for MLA. Got there. That's it for the Country Hour. I hope you have a great afternoon. It's one o'clock.